Welcome to Cyclopath, showcasing work by early career geoscientists that is of interest to the cyclostatographic community. This podcast is made possible thanks to financial support of the International Subcommission on Timescale Calibration. Hi all, um, and thank you, David. Uh, I'm Anna Joy, and today David and I will be uh, hosting um, the 15th episode of Cyclopod. So following our slightly uh, different excursion with a conference special at the EGU 2023 meeting uh, in Vienna, we're really excited to be back in familiar Cyclopod territory with a brand new guest here to share some of their recent exciting work with us. So this time around, our guest is Anya Crocker from the University of Southampton. Um, Anya is a paleoceanographer and a paleoclimatologist who uses marine sediments to look at feedbacks between the continents, oceans and atmospheres on a range of different timescales. So a really fascinating part of your research, Anya, has been on understanding hydroclimate of water-stressed regions in Africa and the Middle East, right? Yes, that's right. So of all the aspects of climate change, it's arguably that hydroclimate, the precipitation patterns on land that might have the largest impact for the life on the continents over the coming centuries. So in my research, I want to better understand the mechanisms of change that drive the patterns of rainfall and also the relationship between precipitation and global and regional forcing factors. So I'm very much interested in targeting regions that are particularly susceptible to changes in precipitation in the future. So, as you mentioned, Africa and the Middle East are two areas where there's already large populations living under water stress. And in my work, I plan, I try to explore these sort of factors driving these precipitation patterns over a whole range of climate states. And through most of my work, I've been focusing on marine sediments as archives of continental change. Um, this might sound rather counterintuitive at first glance to use the ocean sediments to study what's on land, but actually there's a number of advantages in that Deposition is typically quite continuous, so you can get beautiful long-term records without the gaps that you often get on land, for example, when your lake dries out or your river changes course. We can also use a range of different proxies to reconstruct different climate variables, so you can reconstruct what's happening on the land through dust particles or sort of plant fossils. At the same time, you can reconstruct what's happening in the ocean through marine microfossils. And ocean sediment records typically integrate a larger area. So you're less susceptible to little local factors in, in your um, climate reconstructions. On today's Cyclopod, we will talk about your most recent paper in Nature Geoscience. That paper looks at astronomically controlled aridity in the Sahara since the late Miocene. Now the Sahara is obviously the largest hot desert on Earth, but when it first became an arid region, that seems to be a topic of hot debate. And you're shedding new light on that in your new paper. You've been using GORS to document astronomically paced changes between humid and arid conditions in the Sahara. Your data provides surprising insights into how long there has been a desert present in the Sahara region. Yes, thank you. Um, that's very kind. So, yes, so for this study, we've been working on another marine site, which is an ocean drilling project site 659. And it's situated right underneath the modern Sahara dust plume. So it receives large amounts of dust raining out today. And as we found in this study all the way back in the past. So it's, it's a beautiful site to look at. You just get the sediments out on the table and you see really strong color banding all the way through sort of 200 meters of core showing this desert conditions coming and going. 
And the, the color banding is so strong and remarkably similar to insulation forcing that to the extent that I've even used it for an undergraduate practical where you can just put a picture of the core in front of them and they can they can identify processional bundling and the sort of the longer eccentricity cycle. So it's a lovely site to work on. Um, we're often the first people to use this as a record for the Sahara. So some very well known work done by um, Tiedemann and Sandheim back in the sort of late late eighties, early nineties. Um, they made some beautiful records at this site. Uh, more, um, but there was a couple of reasons why we wanted to revisit this, and we felt we could add some more value with a newer study. So, firstly, they produced a dust flux record by just assuming that everything that wasn't calcium carbonate was dust. Um, unfortunately. We now know a bit more about this and the importance of the role of um, carbonate production and dissolution in driving records, particularly in this part of the world. It's been shown over the last glacial cycle that these might be influencing dust flux records. And also there's a real importance of wind strength on dust, that if you don't have strong wind, you can't transport this sort of the fine grain material from the continent out into the ocean, even if it is very arid. So we wanted to try and tease these factors apart and really kind of understand how much they were influencing the dust record. And another reason, and maybe the more important reason why we wanted to revisit this site, is that their beautiful records only went back to about five million years ago. But recent work has suggested that there, it was hinted anyway that there might be more, the Sahara might exist further back in time than that. So classically, it was thought that the Sahara grew at about 2.7 million years ago, associated with the growth of ice in the northern hemisphere. Um, but then there was this finding of a sand dune at about 7 million years ago. Uh, by Schuster and colleagues. And this kind of suggested that maybe we have a much older desert, but this was just one sand dune location with, which is quite hard to date. So it's really hard to kind of put it into context for what it means for, you know, does it represent a desert? Is it just, it was dry in this one little spot? And also then if you're looking at an older birth as higher, then this changes the whole mechanism by which we think the desert developed. So for these reasons, we wanted to go back and look at this site again and extend these records further back. And we use a different approach as well. So instead of just assuming that everything terrigenous in the site is dust, we tried a sort of multi-proxy approach leaning heavily on geochemistry, mostly focusing on ratios of lithogenic elements. And the idea behind using these ratios is that they're not influenced by these changes in the carbonate fraction. So a lot of the, the potential concerns we might have about the more traditional approach should be removed by this. And it also hopefully help us tease out the influences of aridity and wind strength on the records. And so what we found by producing these is that North Africa has been a really highly dynamic environment throughout the last 11 million years. And we see these repeated shifts between sort of arid desert-like conditions and periods of green Sahara where you have vegetation across much of what's the desert today and networks of lakes and rivers, a really different kind of North Africa happening all the way through these 11 million years ago. And this is very, very much driven by insulation forcing of the West African monsoon. And the way that this sort of insulation forcing is expressed seems to change as we go through this longer time period, which we think is probably linked to global climate state. But one of the key results is that all the way through this record, we see dust pulses coming off from um, Western Africa or from, from the inland Africa anyway, throughout this 11 million year record, suggesting that there were dust producing areas right back well before this sort of traditional birth of the Sahara at about 2.7. And even older than this sort of older known um, June, right back into at least the late Miocene at the base of our records. Going into that in a little bit more detail. so. As you already mentioned, 
previously thought that the Sahara arose with the intensification of Northern Hemisphere glaciation. We've kind of more indisputably shown now that this has been around for a lot longer with a big increase at around 8 million years. So have you got any thoughts on which specific mechanisms might have uh, driven these different phases that you found uh, in aridity uh, based on your, your new marine records? Yes, so um, one of the major hypotheses for the birth of the Sahara that's come around in the last bit of decade or so is that it's linked to the closure of the Tethys. So recent studies placed it at about 13.8 million years ago, maybe linked to the permanent glaciation of Antarctica. Um, and modelling work by Zhang and colleagues has kind of suggested that the closure of the Tethys would have weakened the African monsoon and increased the sensitivity to orbital forcing. So we're really kind of lacking records from the heart of the Sahara to test this. But what we can say, because we're getting these pulses back to at least 11 million years ago, our records are consistent with this theory that it may well have been. But we can't properly test it because there's a lack of good sediment recovery um, to go all the way back to this time at this site. However, we are currently working on a second site, which hopefully will allow us to go back to the mid-Miocene and see how the Sahara really did respond to the closure of the Tethys and whether this is the reason for the birth of the um, the desert. Um, so pr some preliminary data suggest this site show will show the switching on and off of the largest dust source in North Africa, the Bodeli Depression. So we see quite a lot of variability in radiogenic isotopes. So fingers crossed that we can really test this, this sort of new favoured hypothesis for the birth of the Sahara. Do you still see an increase in Saharan aridity linked to the intensification of glaciations? Yes, we do. So what we actually see is uh, our records seem to suggest that this transition occurred in kind of two phases. So what we see centered at about sort of 3.1 million years ago in kind of the early stages of the intensification of northern hemisphere glaciation, we see a proxies that are more sort of pure hydroclimate um that we think are linked maybe more to the amount of precipitation on the continent seem to show their main change. And then about 400,000 years later, we see the greatest change in the ones that have maybe more of a dependence on um, on the dust, on the wind strength. So that's our dust flux record. And we also use the ratio of zirconium over rubidium as, as a kind of grain size proxy, which may also have an imprint of the strength of the wind. So there are definitely... You know, big state change between what we see in the Pliocene, where we have quite generally the baseline is quite wet. We have um, sort of moderate dust fluxes again with a strong orbital beat through all the way through. And then when we go into the lake, into the Quaternary, we have the highest dust fluxes in our record occurring. So yeah, there is there is still definitely some big change going on at this interval. It's just that we we're still getting dust before this as well. Brilliant. It's been a huge amount of work and data that you present in this uh, study from quite a range of different techniques. Um, so you've already mentioned this earlier that you used a different approach. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you nailed down, you know, the dust flux and its source. So and especially uh, there's an amazing amount of X-ray fluorescence data uh, that underpins your your sort of paper. How did you yeah, reconcile and relate this to a dust flux? Yeah, so I, I can't really take the credit for this, to be honest, that we very much followed an approach that was developed by Stefan Bullitzer and colleagues on a, at a nearby site, very close to us, but over a much shorter time scale. So you might think that a site located off, you know, right from the middle of the Sahara or offshore Mauritania, all this terrigenous material that reaches it is dust. But actually, um, work from the last glacial cycle shows that 
during the intervals of past humidity, there are networks of rivers draining right up to sort of 20 degrees north, if not further, reaching the coast. And it's been shown that there's this consistent fine grain component in the sediments of the West African margin. Again, it was mostly studied in the Lake Quaternary. And this fine grain component is much finer than any of the data that's picked up from dust traps. So this is something that we wanted to try and exclude when we were calculating our dust fluxes, particularly if we're studying intervals when North Africa might have been much wetter than the Quaternary. And there's some debate about whether this persistent fine grain component represents riverine input or whether it represents sort of background bottom current transported or nephaloid layers. But regardless, this is something that we wanted to remove because it's very hard to match as a pure dust signal. And so to do this, we use the major element signature of the bulk sediment. And one of the reasons this is quite a nice technique is because we can generate this X-ray fluorescence, XRF core scan data really quite quickly. It has other uses as well. So we can use it for stratigraphy as well as doing a hydroclimate reconstructions. Then we can calibrate it with a small number of discrete samples. So typically we'd use around 50. And this allowed us to produce these multi-million year records with an average resolution of around 2000 years. Um, and the, the sort of basis behind the technique to isolate the dust is that the, it's been shown by Mullitzer's study that the riverine inputs and the dust in this region have different major element signatures. So we compiled all the available recent data from the continent to sort of capture a river signal and a dust signal, and then applied an N-membrane mixing approach to work out the relative proportions of these two components in the bulk marine sediments. And so we used a kind of bootstrapping approach to assess the uncertainty because we can't quite know what these N-members would look like in the past. So uh, we performed the calculations about 300 times with randomly selecting a subset of the available dust data and a subset of the available river data to try and assess the impact that these changes would have had in the in composition of the sources would have had on our marine site. And luckily, that showed the overall trends that we have in our dust fluxes are relatively insensitive to these impacts. And we could also test this ourselves. So we picked a few samples from different ages. Uh, we just sieved them at 10 microns, which is about the size fraction that we seem to see it seems to separate out this sort of fine-grained mystery, possibly riverine component, and the coarser grain that we can more confidently attribute to dust. And we do see the same elemental offset, and that persisted throughout all the different time periods and the different kind of climate states. And we also um, found that this offset was much bigger than, say, um, where someone had looked at the grain size, the same two grain size fractions, or very similar, from a modern dust trap sample. So it's not just sort of natural fractionation with grain size it is that these sources are producing different elements so that was the, the principle of how we calculated um, our dust fluxes geochemically we also tried to check to be as robust as we could and luckily for us there have been some thorium normalized dust flux records produced from almost the same site and covered the last 300,000 years so that was something that we could compare to and we could see the trends seem to be pretty robust insensitive to the impacts of carbonate dissolution and bottom current transport and so on. So that helped add a bit of confidence to our dust flux reconstructions. You're pretty confident in, in disentangling or, or differentiating between the dust flux and the rivering flux, but you went further than that. You also looked at the provenance of the dust, right? So do the different phases you identified come from different regions as well? Uh, so, so yeah, so the provenance was a really important thing for us to do because one thing we wanted to know is that, is whether we wanted to kind of rule out that the continental stuff that was reaching our site wasn't just sort of coastal sand dunes to try and get an idea of is it something 
more recognizable as a Sahara. So yeah, to do this, we use the radiogenic isotopes, so strontium and neodymium in particular. And this is something that we've been working on in a little while. And the idea is that the sort of um, the different source region rocks imprint a different signature in these proxies. And so you can sort of match your down core, particularly neodymium. It doesn't seem to be modified too much in transport. So in order to try and do this properly, we also looked at the signatures of the different source regions on land. And this was a project led by my PhD student, Amy Jewell. And we sort of compiled any data we could find. And she also made, we sort of reached out to make contacts with as many people that we could that work in these, these regions. So people um, were very grateful to colleagues that provided us with samples. And we were able to produce updated maps of the dust source regions to try and understand what these fingerprints should look like. And one thing that we did that was rather different than previous studies was that we weight them by the dust activity. So the idea of dust source regions, this sort of preferential source areas, as they're often called PSAs, people are kind of drawn very arbitrarily on maps. And they're often based on how much dust is in the atmosphere, which is quite different to where the dust is coming from on the ground. So what we did is we um, used data by Kirsten Chapansky, who has a, a technique that really maps exactly where the dust is coming from. And then we weight our, our radiogenic isotope data by these um by the dust activity so then any samples we have from very dust producing areas uh, go very heavily into the PSA the source region signature and so then then that gave us the framework basically then to turn back to the marine corps and say so so what do we get and what we found is that actually the changes in the radiogenic isotope signature of our site they're really quite small in comparison to the difference between the source regions on land so the it's very subtle change. So largely what we think we can say is that we're not getting huge amounts of change in the source region. It seems to be pretty constant throughout the 11 million years. So we can kind of rule out the hypothesis that we're getting a lot of, um, that, that any dust back in the Miocene is just from coastal dunes. We can't say too much about the extent of the deserts, but certainly the dust active areas, we're not finding evidence that they've changed hugely since the late Miocene. Wonderful stuff, Anya. We're now going to take a short detour as it's time for the number of the month. So this month, the number is 150, um, as last September was the 150th anniversary of the start of the Challenger expedition, uh, which was celebrated at the Challenger 150 conference at the Natural History Museum. In 1872, the HMS Challenger departed the UK on a four-year scientific expedition to explore the physics, chemistry, uh, biology and geology of the world's oceans. And during uh, their time at sea, the scientists on board were able to collect um, observations and samples at over 360 stations. And much of this data and material is still uh, used by um, modern researchers today. So, Anya, you chaired a session at this Challenger 150 conference. Um, how was it to revisit the impact of the Challenger expedition uh, 150 years later? Um, is there still information that we can get from the data and, and, and even the samples that were collected so long ago? They're stored at the Natural History Museum, right? 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of them still are, and they were involved in the organisation of the meeting as well. Yeah, it's been fantastic things to um, to be involved with. Because the Challenger expedition is such a really important part of UK and even global oceanographic research history um, from the scope of it. And in, a way, in many ways, it was almost like a sort of um, inspiration for IODP and a lot of the following initiatives that they had this sort of this cruise set off with just about six civilian and scientific staff on along with 200 crew and they came back with such an amazing set of data over their four years from everything from sort of mapping ocean depth sampling the water studying temperature and properties looking at current speed direction um, sampling bottom samples dredging and tow nets to get different fauna at different ocean depths that afterwards um, was worked on sort of by over 100 scientists at this point and produced 50 giant volumes of, re- of results that sort of shows this, the model of a small scientific um, party leading to a huge output for a larger community. Um, yes, yeah, so the name of this expedition lives on through the Challenge, UK Challenger Society who organised this meeting. Um, and yes, this this so this year they had a special one themed about the expedition, and very much the samples are still very very used. So um, I'm thinking of what there was one study in particular that I thought was really interesting, um, which was work done by some of the National History Museum um, staff and other colleagues institutions, and they looked at some of the forearm samples that the Challenger expedition collected in the 1870s and compare them to modern ones. And already you can really see the impact of the anthropogenic carbon emissions on the forearm calcification. So things like that, that we have this sort of baseline record of what the oceans were like over a century ago means that it provides a really fantastic way of assessing changes um, over the last sort of 150 years and with some, I think, rather alarming results in some cases. And now back to your paper. The C4 expansion has classically been linked to a rise in aridity in the late Miocene, but your new data shows that this relationship is not so straightforward as we once thought. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you put that into question? Yes, so C3 and C4 plants, um, for those who are less familiar with the biological side, they're distinguished by different photosynthetic pathways. And so the C4 pathway is favoured at low CO2 and warmer temperatures in general with the opposite, the C3. And what has been observed in a number of places all around the world is that there is this replacement of C3 grasslands with C4, at low, um, particularly in low latitudes in the late Miocene. And this has been linked to a number of different drivers, such as aridity, PCO2 and fire with different things invoked at different sites. So as part of our study, our colleagues in Bristol, um, David Naffs and Rich Pankos, generated carbon isotopic signatures of N-alkanes preserved in the same at site 659. So in the same sediments, we were producing the hydroclimate records. And what they found was that this expansion of C4 grasslands was very gradational on North Africa, spanning from about 11 to 1 million years ago. And this was in excellent agreement with records presented off East Africa by Kevin Uno and colleagues a few years earlier. So this is just kind of very long, gentle trend. Other parts of the world, it's sometimes sort of shorter, more condensed and so on. But here it's it's a very gentle, gradational, very steady shift. So we don't see anything in our aridity proxies that show the same overall trend, basically. So that disparity you mentioned um, of the dominant astronomical forcing that you see in your dust ref derived records, 
versus what you see in sort of the trends in the leaf wax data. It was quite revealing about what you could say about the C4 shift. Yes. So it's been previously argued that the C4 expansion on North Africa wasn't driven by hydroclimate because there was very little hydroclimate variability over the last 11 million years. Um, This conclusion was based on data that didn't capture orbital resolution. And so by looking at these sort of higher resolution records, we can see that orbital variability really dominates hydroclimate signal all the way out throughout these 11 million years. So it's really something that can't be ignored. And what we see in most of our proxies that the sort of amplitude of change within one processional cycle is of similar magnitude to the sort of long-term multi-million year changes. Um, so in order to kind of dig into things a little bit more, we compared our records to several snapshots of really higher resolution plant wax isotope data, which were produced by Enno Shapers's lab, again from site 659. So we could really look at these orbital cycles and see how um and how the sort of C3, C4 proxies through the plant wax carbon isotope signature varied with hydroclimate. We do see precessionally paced variability in these carbon isotope signatures of plant waxes in conjunction with this precessional forced variability of the West African monsoon. But the, the magnitude of the variability in these carbon isotope records is much, much smaller than the multi-million year trend that we see in this um, in these carbon isotope records which is kind of the opposite to hydroclimate, where this orbital signal really dominates. There's probably a little aspect of smoothing in our in our plant wax records because we're quite off you know, a few hundred kilometers offshore. So we've probably smoothed a little bit over a broad geographical area, but it's still very hard to reconstru- reconcile this very small amplitude orbital signal um, in, in these sort of plant wax records with this large shift that happens over a million years. So... There was certainly not ruling out that there's an influence of hydroclimate in driving this C4 expansion. What we're saying is that it's just not, it's not a simple one-to-one relationship between aridity and C4 through the late Neogene in North Africa. That brings us to my last question, really. Um, your data also hints at some very interesting and intriguing links between hydroclimate on the one hand and human evolution on the other hand. How does that work? Yes. So one of the most enjoyable aspects of this project for me has been the chance to talk to specialists in archaeology and anthropology about the impacts that the climate variability we're interested may have had on our early ancestors. And many of the theories of evolution have a strong link to climate. So they need very good quality records to test this. And as paleoclimatologists, this is something that it's kind of our job to provide. Uh, an example of this is the, the kind of classic savanna hypothesis that you may have come across before. The idea being that as North Africa got more arid as we come through the neogene, the savannas replaced forest, and this provided a kind of pressure or an incentive for our ancestors to come down from the trees and start walking on two legs. So it's been suggested that the oldest pro- proposed biped is dated to about seven million years ago, the fossil known as Sahelanthropus chedensis, or nicknamed Tumai. And this fossil has been found in Chad rather than in East Africa. So our records provide quite a nice indication of the sort of climate that Tumai might have lived in. And we find that there's no real evidence of drying at about seven million years ago. If anything, there seems to be a shift towards a slightly wetter climate. So this is a kind of an example of how we can provide the context to help to the work of archaeologists and so on. Um, I'm certainly no expert in these things myself, but my understanding is that a lot of their theories are shifting more from baseline climate states to the importance of variability in evolution as well. 
And so again, this is something that we can explore if we can work at high enough resolution. So we do see in our records there are changes in the amplitude of variability, or at least of orbitally forced variability, which is as, as high a resolution as we can capture in our site. Um, and these change with climate state. So, for example, most of our proxies seem to show larger amplitude cycles in the Pliocene. And this, again, is providing important context. And it's always really hard to compare um, directly these sort of on-land fossil records or hominid fossil records with marine sediment core records. And this is due to the both the the um, sparseness of the fossils. A lot of these they find sort of one specimens and the difficulty of dating what they have found. So we can't sort of say anything like which part of the precession cycle this happened, but we can provide these kind of longer term records. And it's all, I always find it kind of heartening that that paleoclimate work can produce records that can be of use to such sort of different fields. And from my experience, a lot of archaeologists are extremely impressed with the dating precision you can get with cyclostratigraphy. So if any cyclostratigraphers want to reach out to the archaeological community, I think you'd be welcome. Well, that's a Brilliant. conclusion for a cyclopod. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> really positive one. Yeah, well, thanks, Anya. That was uh, really wonderful and um, interesting to hear and get a bit of an explanation of, of, of your paper, a huge amount of work. I guess this will definitely be an area that we uh, should keep a, an eye out for. So, yeah, thank you again, Anya, for your time uh, to talk to us today. And uh, thanks for all the listeners to tuning into the 15th Cyclopod episode. And See you all next time.